Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Alfred Steiner, a lawyer and artist. Steiner practices copyright and trademark law in New York City with Morial, Caputian, and Woods. He also practices art in a variety of media, from watercolor to conceptual art. We will discuss the relationship between his legal and artistic practices. So welcome to the show, Alfred. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you, and I'm so glad that Don Zaretsky connected us and and, uh, recommended you for the show, because I'm a huge fan of your work as soon as I encountered it, and I'm really especially excited because it so closely overlaps with a lot of the things that I'm personally really interested in, so I'm really excited to talk to you about especially your conceptual law art practice and maybe hear more about how you describe it or how you conceptualize it as well. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Don introduced us too. Uh, there aren't many people out there who are, are practicing law and, and doing art at a, you know, at a reasonably high level uh, that are, you know, that are both interesting. I think there are a lot of um, dabblers, a lot of lawyers who dabble in art, um, maybe to the detriment of, of lawyers like you and me who are a little more serious about it. Um, but uh, I've been, just to give you a little bit of a little biography, I considered studying art in um, as an undergrad, but sort of decided against it just because I didn't think I would have much family support and it, it didn't seem that practical. <laughs> so I then, um, I still took a bunch of art classes in, uh, as an undergrad. And then a friend on a lark suggested I apply to law school because he thought I, you know, I'd probably get in somewhere decent. And um, so I applied just on a, on a lark. Uh, and the only place I got into was Harvard, strangely. And uh, so I decided that would probably be a, a good thing to do. And when, um, when that happened, another friend of mine who was a school teacher now, but he, he, um, he said, I think he'd be really interested in intellectual property. And so then I, I went and got the nutshell from my undergrad library on IP. And it, the, the, it really seemed fascinating. And so a lot of the issues, especially in copyright, seemed to um, dovetail with the things I was interested in from an art and, and philosophy perspective. I, I, I majored in math, mathematics and philosophy. So mm-hmm. um, uh, and then I went to law school. I did find intellectual property was really fascinating. And, um, you know, even during law school, I took art classes at the undergrad, which was great because they had the, um, Carpenter center, um, is a, is a, for visual environmental studies is a great program and, um, brought a lot of interesting people in. And, uh, and then I also, I did a, uh, comic for the Harvard law record the whole time I was at, uh, in law school. And then when I got out, I, uh, and stop me if I'm going on too long, but I, um, I had a studio from, uh, you know, sort of from day one, cause I decided I was going to, you know, keep making work as much as I could as a full-time associate. And, uh, I did that and maintained a studio practice and my law practice for about seven years until I, I started working part-time so I could spend more time, uh, doing art. And essentially that's what I've done since 2005, I spend, um, you know, more or less, it goes up and down. Sometimes, you know, a majority of my time doing artwork and sometimes a majority of my time doing 
law, just depending on where, you know how, how busy things are on the law front or the art front. Um, and uh, so uh, that's that's where I am. Um, and I, I find actually there have been times where I've done, or there was actually a period where I took two years off from the law completely. And one thing that I was not expecting to find was that my law job actually provided a lot of fodder for my artwork. And, and there, when I stopped doing it all together, that, you know, there was something missing. Um, so, you know, there, there definitely is a, um, a nice synthesis between the two and, and, you know, I think each of them um, feeds the other in way, in kind of unexpected ways. Cool. So I wonder if you could describe your legal practice a little bit. So sure. what areas are you prim- primarily practicing in? What kind of clients are you representing? And sort of what aspects of your legal practice have been sort of most productive or productive, provocative in relation to your own art practice as well as you're thinking about art more generally. Yeah. Um, well, I do, as you said it in your, your excellent introduction, I, um, I practice, uh, copyright trade and trademark law. Um, I also do, um, a lot of transactional stuff on, you know, sort of the new media or, or technology side. Um, so a lot of advice, you know, on issues related to domain names, um, transfer of domain names, uh, inter- things that, legal issues that arise on the internet and social media. Uh, a lot, I probably the, um, uh, you know, the bread and butter of my practice are, are is, is advising on copyright and trademark issues. So I do all aspects of, of, of both, uh, in terms of, um, selection and clearance of trademarks, um, through prosecution, uh, and then, uh, enforcement and, and defending against uh, claims of infringement, uh, both um, at the before you know before the uh, trademark trial and appeal board and you know in litigation. Um, in recent years, has been a lot, on that front. There's been a lot of uh, trade dress uh, issues that have come up, and um, I've been my for, my firm has been fortunate to have uh, uh, several or have had several um, very interesting trade dress cases. Uh, in fact, there's one now that, that I mean, I, I can't get into in detail, but it's really interesting because the, the trade dress is a product design and it, it seems really all very unfair that this, the plaintiff in this case, we represent the defendant could claim um, trade dress rights in, in something that would, you would think would normally be protected by something temporal like copyright or patent design patent. And they're, and you know, they they may get, um, indefinite, uh, protection. So, mm. uh, on the copyright side, I do, you know, I help clients with the mundane task of, uh, getting copyright registrations. And I also, you know, uh, this answers another question. I do advise a lot of artists and I, I always advise them if they think that, um, any specific aspect or, or body of work is likely you know, or is conducive to copying because, because some of it isn't. And, and a lot of mine really isn't because it's not very commercially viable in terms of that. A lot of the imagery is obscene or, or, um, you know, offensive for other reasons. And so it's not really likely to be copied. I, I just, as a matter of practice, I register all my stuff anyway, but I, I advise artists very strongly. If they think that their stuff might be copied to register it because that way, in many cases I could, you know, I can take on a representation um, without 
without um, you know charging hourly fees, uh, and and they were, were otherwise it would be very difficult to enforce. Um, so that's I, I think that gives you a general idea of what I do, um, how it um, how it relates to my work. I guess I would say, you know, I'm, I, I have them both in mind. These, these two, it's kind of very, I'm not, I'm not very pro interdisciplinary as a, as a sort of a study route. I think, because I think a lot of the times interdisciplinary study as such results in sort of a, a lack of depth in the, in the important fields. But, um, but I am very pro interdisciplinary in the sense that having developed two areas of expertise, I see where they come together and, and, and both these, both, both of these ways of looking at the world um, coalesce. And so I, I might be doing research on a, say a client's uh, project and be, and then be con- like wondering about, for example, um, what, like how, like how far do, um, uh, does the visual artist rights act, extend like could it does it only apply to the physical object or could it conceivably apply to the copy and you know then i'll i and actually I, that's that's an actual example and i've um and in doing that research i've you know the, the language actually is conducive to reading it to apply to copies not just the original um and but you know it you know the uh Nimmer and and courts seem pretty clear that they're only going to it only should be applied or is only going to be applied to the actual physical object, which makes sense. It's just a little bit of, in my opinion, um, not super tidy drafting that causes that issue. But so I haven't done it in this case. But what I might do, uh, you know, in, in when I find something like that, is think about a work that might engage or exploit whatever that whatever that interesting aspect of the law is or aspect of the law that has some import with respect to contemporary art or art making. Um, and I mean, I can give you examples of mm. specific cases if you're, if you're interested. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I can certainly see how your legal practice has informed a lot of your more conceptual art practice. But one thing I also found really interesting was I read a really interesting essay that you wrote about the intersection of copyright and art practice and how a lot of kind of assumptions of copyright doctrine are really in tension with, or even just facially inconsistent with what artists actually do and need to be able to do in order to make, you know, to make art in the kind of genres that they're working in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and mm-hmm. like, it, it, you know, how has, how has the kind of influence or insight work the other way as well? Um, well, to address the first question, uh, I think that the essay you were talking about might be a few, a few observations on, on copyright and art. Um, I think that's the title. Uh, and in that, sort of the thesis of that, um, one of the theses of that uh, essay is that artists should be, artists should be free to copy, to, ma- to make unique, op- unique objects. Um, and of course, that doesn't that doesn't cover the it's not it's not a panacea for copyright and art getting along because a lot of people make artwork that is digital or, or results in many copies. Um, but sort of the 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 um, typical uh, art uh, art object is a is a is a unique object or maybe a limited edition print. It's a painting. It's a sculpture. 
it's a print and there are 10 copies of it, something like that. So my argument really is that copyright is, is just not the right tool for addressing, you know, uh, our, uh, uh, you know, what anybody makes in, in a world where you're only making one. Um, so generally speaking, that's sort of the general outline. Of course, um, there, are, there, there are limited exceptions, but the reason that's so important to me um, is that, you know, we live in a mediated a mediated world, you know, the, the vast majority of what we can call visual culture was produced um, relatively recently, you know, and I don't know, it'd be great if there was a way to quantify it and look at the chart and say, in the past 15 years, 85% of all visual material was produced or something like that. Um, now that people have digital cameras and everyone's taking, you know, five to 20 pictures a day or more, you know, that, that, that is, that curve is just continues to steepen. So, if since copyright lasts so long, if we assume that artists can't use that material, um, you know, you're looking at artists not being able to speak in today's language. Um, it'd be like artists are only allowed to write in Shakespeare, or writers are only allowed to write in Shakespearean, you know, English. That would be, you know, an analogy. And it was funny because I actually asked this question once to um, a uh, like a, a prominent copyright scholar, and I I said, you know or, you know, artists need to be able to speak in this language and fair use should be um, more, uh, should be clearer with respect to people making unique objects, in individual objects that, um, you know, you can't get slammed for $150,000 in attorney's fees and, um, you know, and or $150,000 in damage plus attorney's fees. If you, all you do is, um, you know, make a collage out of images from the New York Times, uh, and he was like, well, you know, the artists should, you know, artists can go back, you know, you can find that stuff, just, you know, look at Dürer. And I'm like, you know, there's a point to that. There's a lot of stuff in the public domain, but, but as, as I argue, like the vast majority of, of what's relevant now is not. So, um, that, I think that hopefully that answers your first question and, uh, you're to get to the other point, how does the art inform the law? I, I, it, I think it, it's more, it, it, the art informs the law in more of a, um, less of a conceptually interesting way, maybe, um, because, or maybe the ways that it, that it informs it in conceptually interesting ways aren't apparent to me yet. But, um, you know, I, it's, it's when I'm um, dealing with an infringement case and, I, and, you know, my client is saying, here's my work, here's the, co here's the copying work. You're, you know, here's the, alleged, the work I allege infringes. I can look at it and, um, you know, I think that my, my visual ability, which has been honed through doing art and looking at art for my whole life, um, allows me to sort of um, hone in on exactly what has been copied. And then, uh, you, know, for, you know, fortunately, I can articulate that stuff reasonably well, too, maybe because I've you know, of the legal training and the philosophy, I don't know. But um, so for just to give you one example, I, I, um, there was a trade dress infringement case where the plaintiff had kind of very offhandedly claimed that our client had copied, even, even copied one of the, of the photographs that, um, that they used to promote their product. And, you know, the other, the other attorneys were kind of like, you know, saying, I, I, I don't know why they threw that in there. It just, just, just seems very weak to me. 
And so then I went, then I, I looked at the pictures and I said, I said the opposite. I was like, I, I, I look at these and I know for a fact that, um, that some, that whoever produced the second photograph had to have been looking at the first photograph and here's why. And like, I went through and I was like, here are 15 things that I can say about the first, second photograph that must've come from the first photograph. And, you know, um, I, you know, I, to me, it was obvious and may, maybe, maybe, maybe it would be obvious to you too, but uh, you know, I think that having, um, you know, gone through all those art history classes and, and, and had your art history teacher put up these two things that you're, you're first, at first you look at and you're like, what do these have in common? And then they start describing why one is almost certainly um, uh, influenced by the other. You, you begin to understand and you begin to build a threshold for sort of how much, how much evidence do you need before you can be convinced that one, that one artist or one infringer copied from uh, another, another party? Can you talk a little bit about the kind of arc of your artistic practice and the range of media that you work in? Sure. sure. I, I, when I was, I mean, I, I, when I was a kid, I, you know, I, I drew a lot, which I guess is, you know, cause pen and paper are readily available. And I, I did, I did a lot of academic work. So during that whole period of time, I, I did a lot of doodling and a lot of rendering in, ballpoint pen. Um, and then, you know, as I uh, began to take more and more classes, I started uh, in, into different media. And when I was in law school, I started painting in oil. Um, and I, I continue with that for, for, some, for some time. And that was my primary medium. Um, and then at, at some point, I, I had this, the, this drawing, this impetus to draw that I had um, built while I was, you know, while I was, uh, an act, you know, in academia and, and just in, in classes a lot. And I, I sort of wanted to, ex to, to extend that. Um, and then I had the, the, the oil painting thing and they, I, they were, they were kind of very separate. And I, I always was pushing to try to figure out something that brought aspects of them together, which led me to adopt watercolor, um, which, you know, I might, it, 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 I, it, they have enough in or th there was a synthesis there that it, in my mind brought those two things together. Um, so I um, started doing a lot of watercolor um, and the, uh, for whatever reason, the watercolors also were um, the first thing that I was doing that, that had some commercial success. So I can, I have continued to do them. Um, but I would say from maybe, I don't know what year, maybe 2005, I, I would have to look back. Um, but there, there was some point, uh, there was some point at which I just, I would have, all, you know, I would have all sorts of ideas for projects and I have, I have, I still do. And I have them written down somewhere. And a lot of them are ridiculous in terms of like, some of them, I would just have to be a very, very successful artist to, to, to you know, to realize. And other ones are so, are absurd. You know, I would have to be, maybe Bill Gates could, could realize them with his kind of resources. But um, sense of or hypothetical in the sense that they. Um, but I just at, at some point um, that I started actually, you know, some of these I actually developed. I actually realized as um, uh, at, you know uh, beyond just. A, a, a concept laid down on paper. And then the other ones I, I started um, culling 
and collecting together. And I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm thinking about, I've been working on um, a publication of some sort that brings all, you know, I have maybe a hundred of them together, all of these things, many of which are, can best understood, or best be understood as text. Um, so, and, and some, and among those are the, uh, are, are the agreements, um, which uh, this, the first of those was just agreement as artwork, where I just want to, you know, I just kind of, uh, I have, I, I mean, of course, there are a lot of agreements, a lot artists have worked with agreements before, but I sort of wanted to reduce, reduce the entire artwork, all that it consists of is the agreement. And, and when I say that, like, it's not the piece of paper, it's, it's, it's the offer, acceptance and consideration, the contract that's the, that is the, that is the work. And, um, you know, of course how it's written and everything is, you know, you you can start asking questions. There are a lot of different ways you could do it. And, 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 you know, if you read the actual agreement as artwork, number one, as as it's called, like, you you know, you, you, that it would answer with some of those questions, but um, I did that work. And then it occurred to me. um, And the reason I did it is because or the, the reason it occurred to me to do was a lot of artwork out there um, d- kind of in a way uh, its existence, you know, it, it gets, it gets um, com- commodified or be- becomes a product that people can buy, even though it lacks almost all of the important things about things that people can buy. So for example, if, um, if I buy a Lawrence Wiener work, like a, a let's take the work that was at the MoMA for a long time, a wall pitted by a single air rifle shot. And that might be a paraphrase. It could be, that could be exactly what it is, but that's something like what it is. If you buy that work, you're buying a piece of paper or what you get is a piece of paper that says that you own a Lawrence Wiener work with that title. And it'll say, you know, the uh, year dimensions materials or, you know, which is language plus, plus materials referred to or whatever. But you don't have like if, if if I own something like um, an iPhone, you know I, I can exclude others from using my iPhone. If I own and if I own a painting, I can exclude others from using my painting. I have it hanging in my my apartment or whatever. But if I own a Lawrence Wiener, I actually can't exclude anyone from using it. Anyone who wants to put up on their wall, write write the words a, a wall pitted by a single air rifle shot can do that. And anyone can just shoot their wall with a single air rifle shot, right? And they've got, they have everything about the Lawrence Wiener except for the piece of paper. And so this, that piece agreement is artwork number one in the sense is pointing to uh, the gymnastics that, that artists go to, you know, engage in to, to make their work um, something that can be bought and sold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that first piece in particular really felt like it was in conversation in particular for me with the Siegelau artist contract in mm-hmm. the sense that it sort of crystallized Siegelau's point in putting the artist contract together. I mean, a lot of people take it as like a kind of practical tool, but in a lot of ways, I think it was also intended by him as like a commentary on that relationship. And I really felt like your piece pointed my attention to that more kind of fundamental um, uh, market and social and socioeconomic relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's funny that you phrase it that way, pointed your attention to, because, um, you know, a lot of the, that body of work that I'm talking about, this, this, you know, the very conceptual stuff, the stuff that makes most sense as text. Um, when I've been, when I, you know, when I try to think about, uh, you know, a lot of, some of it is done with the, you know, with the, to ask the question, you know, what, what can art be, you know, how, you know, which is kind of a silly question at this point, I mean, or, or, you know, a cliche question. Um, but, but that, it, that in itself is interesting to me because, you know, one of the, one of the earlier pieces in that body of work is called no clearance in niche. And the, so, and, and all I'm doing, like you said, is I'm pointing people's attention to something that already exists in the world. I, I call those fiat works, meaning that they only exist by, by, by dint of my fiat, as my works, that is. So I, I say those signs that are in the, in the subway at, at 14th Street and 8th Avenue that say no clearance in niche are, are now that, you know, that, that's my work. And, you know, it's, I mean, I, you know, of course, I, I, I don't mean that I, that, that I can go in there and I, I'm not asserting any property right. Uh, but it's interesting to me that those signs mean something very particular, which is if you're literally, if, if, if you're on the tracks and a train is coming, um, don't try to take cover in this, in this niche, because if you do, there's no clearance and you will get smashed. <laughs> right. So, but if, if, if I point to it, if I, as, if I, you know, say make an artistic act and point your attention to it, then, then what does it mean? You know, it means some, it, it, the, the meaning is transformed and it's transformed in a way that points to the cliche, the cliche point that I was making earlier, which is, you know, what is there left for, for artists? What, what, what artistic territory is there left for artists to claim? And I, I've, I've raised this issue publicly before, you know, in talks and things like, and I've had other artists sort of like shout me down, like that you're just, you're, you're just, uh, you just have a small imagination. Like, like there's so much territory left. Um, but, you know, I mean, even Rauschenberg, in the sixties, you know, like was pushing the boundary between art and life. And, you know, he, he did a, he went a long way to, 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 um, you know, to, to blurring it. But, you know, at this point, um, you know, the, the, the borderline is, is all but gone. And so, and so I like to, and so sort of a lot, you know, what more territory is there to take up? You have people like Lawrence Wiener, um, you have uh, people like Tino, Tino Segal, who, um, are, who I think have made, you know, in, in, the, in the relatively recent past, have made um, uh, sort of leaps into what, uh, in, in sort of uh, getting the rest of the, the world to come around to recognizing something as art that will, at, at some point in the past might not have been. Um, but that, that no clearance niche is, is sort of asking the question, you know, what, how much clearance is there for, for, for an artist to create, um, uh, to, to be novel? And it gets to... Um, and Arthur Danto is probably, you know, one of my fam favorite art, you know, writers on art, but, you know, he talks about the illusion of novelty. And I think that's, you know, a, a really interesting concept. The fact that what, you know, artists, one of artists jobs or people might think of an artist's job or a contemporary artist's job as, as creating things that are novel. Um, but, but really maybe it's creating things that have the, the appearance of novelty. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I really like about a subset of that body of work in particular is the way it seems to reflect on and speak to particular aspects of copyright doctrine in ways that copyright practitioners 
typically ignore or can't see because of the frame that they're using to look at what copyright is doing and provide a kind of interesting kind of like refracted illumination as it were of how the law intersects with the real world. And there's a kind of really fascinating pedagogical almost element to them as well. Like kind of what art can teach us about law by virtue of kind of artifying the law itself. And I'm thinking in particular of, of pieces like uh, the agreement for sale of attribution power um, and uh, like your public license for, for criminal use. You know, I mean, a bunch of these pieces seem to, or the 100% resale royalty, you know, kind of quasi copyright elements. I'm sort of, I wonder what you think about, or kind of how you personally conceptualize those pieces in relation to the way that you as a lawyer sort of practice copyright law and how they reflect your sort of thinking about your law practice and how you're thinking about your law practice has maybe developed or been informed by your art practice. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, the, you know, uh, so I, I probably makes sense to answer it like in the specific. Um, so a hundred percent resale royalty, for example, that's, that's peace. And for those listening who aren't familiar with it, which I assume is everyone <laughs> is ba basically the piece is um, you can buy the work anytime. Anybody can buy it. It's for sale. Uh, the, the price of the work actually goes up a dollar a day. I, I don't know. So right now it's probably worth maybe 80 bucks or something like that. Um, and you can buy it just by PayPaling me the amount of, of days past a certain date. And then it's your work. But of course, you know that anybody else can buy it at any time by PayPaling me the, the whatever the, the, you know, five days later, five more dollars. Um, so the idea is you, you do own it. And I, I will send you a certificate saying that you own it. Um, at some point or saying that you owned it. But the idea is that, but, but for every dollar that somebody spends on the work goes to me. So that's the hundred percent resale royalty. If somebody, if somebody buys it, you know, the, the previous owner gets nothing. I get a hundred percent. So it's sort of in a way, you know, I, um, there are artists out there, a lot, a lot of artists out there that um, are, I, I, or I'm not, I'm not an overly serious artist you know, despite like doing law, which some people think is serious, but I think an element of humor in law is, or an element of humor in the work in my, there is an element of humor in my work. Um, and that's sort of a send up on the idea of, uh, of, uh, of, of, you know, a, of getting a resale royalty and, and taking it to the absolute extreme. And, and then what, what are you left with at that point? You know, like, is there any incentive for, an, for anyone to buy it? I was, I mean, it changed hands like seven or eight times in the first few days with mostly with friends of mine. Um, and I, I don't know what it went for like last, like 13 bucks. And so maybe I've made 60 bucks or something, yeah, but yeah. I was actually at a party once and I was talking to this guy who I, a very young guy, probably like 32. Um, and he, he said, Oh, I'm a collector. And 
I, you know, I didn't know what he meant by that really, but then he started showing me pictures of him and cause hanging out. And he's like, Oh, I, I'm on the, I'm on this board's committee for this, this and that. And I'm like, you know, Oh, I'm like, you know, artists, you know, I like, you know, dollar signs are popping out of my head here in the cartoon, but not really. But, and then I, 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 for some reason I started telling him about this work. Um, I started describing it to him that, and I was like, Oh, it's a work that anyone can buy. And he's like, Oh, I'll buy it you know, he just threw that out there. And I was like, okay. And then I said, well, here's what, here's how it works. And I start telling him how it works. And then like, he, like he immediately was like, no, this is just not for me. You know, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> buying something that somebody else can buy and I get nothing. Yeah. Uh, so it was, uh, you know. But, so, but what, what I love about that particular piece is that it's a, it's kind of a send up of the resale royalty, right. In the sense that as a legal matter, right. This has been a huge battle that artists have fought for years and years and years to try to get some kind of enforceable resale royalty right, which is just kind of essentially at this point been deep six. And even then they were asking for sort of a percentage of the resale price. You've actually devised a method that is totally works, but it works by turning the model on its head and just saying every time you buy it, it's kind of almost like a new work or like you're giving it back to me and I'm, I'm reselling it, you know, but then at the same time, I'm sort of like, I can't help but wonder, like, is there a secondary market in this work? Well, that's um, the, the, the way the work is described is actually sales, the sales history, that, that the, the actual work is the sales history. So that's like the, when you buy it, you know, you know, you buy it, you're added to the sales history. And then, you know, that, that is, that is what, I would say people we would focus on if you were thinking about the work, the mechanics, of course, but then what, you know, what, what, how, what's been the history of this work from a sales perspective. And that's, that's also getting to the mark that, you know, the art world, the artwork has reduced to something, you know, that, that it really only exists because of its status in the market. Um, and, you know, I, I once did a, um, did a talk about uh, that I, I called, um, it, you know, is the concept of artistic merit obsolete? And one of the things that I raised in that is, you know, uh, the market as an arbiter of, of artistic value and, and, you know, ask the question is, is the market a, is a market an, an, a good arbiter of artistic value? And the answer is, um, it's an imperfect, it's an imperfect arbiter of, of artistic value, but it's one of the only objective measures we have you know, the other objective measures being things like, or, you know, that we could try to try to make objective to some, somehow is influence on younger artists or influence on, on what people do in the future, which is of course hard to quantify, but we, but, you know, scholars can at least have a record to dig into and figure out if that's happened. Mm -hmm. So that's um, the idea of, of reducing this thing to like just a sales history is, you know, a lot of artwork sits there in storage um, you know, and, and never sees the light of day or very rarely sees the light of day. And, and it really, you know, it might change hands three or four times during that period of time. So it's sort of, you know, reflecting that reality of, of the art, of the art market as a, a big system of commodities. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the works get to that valuation question as well. Like I'm thinking in particular, the partial purchase agreement, which mm -hmm. is, I mean, I read it as kind of a securitization of conceptual art, which uh, is something I'm particularly quite interested in. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a very clever move 
on that front in relation to thinking about valuation. I wonder if you could just describe it and then talk a little bit about like sort of your goals with that particular piece. Partial, partial purchase agreement. Um, it's a very reasonably priced artwork in some sense. Uh, like, you know, if my, you know, if my typical watercolor might go from between five and $10,000 or something like that, um, which are also, in my opinion, quite modestly priced, uh, this work, this work sells for a thousand. Um, but, uh, I'm only selling, um, one, one ten thousandth of a percent so that when, when you know you're, you're for a thousand dollars, you get one top one ten thousandth of a percent of this work, which um, you know if you're familiar with how companies get valued, uh, you know if you're if you're um, uh, say Uber and you're starting out and somebody puts in a hundred million dollars and only gets ten percent, that means your company's worth a billion dollars. Um, so this is sort of applying that model to artwork. So if you, if something if, you know, hopefully I'll eventually I'll, I will sell this work. Somebody will pay it, pay me a thousand dollars and they'll get their one ten thousandth of one percent of the work, which will imply a valuation of one billion. Um, it'll become the most expensive artwork by that, by that measure. But it, actually that, that had a very particular, and it, this will give you some insight into how I think, but um, I don't know if you remember Damien Hurst's piece for the love of God, the, the platinum skull with encrusted with diamonds so supposedly it costs him something like, I don't know, maybe 25 million to make it. Um, to, uh, but, but then, uh, you know, months after, some months after it was made and, and exhibited, it was reported widely that it had sold for 100 million. But when you dug into who, you know, who bought it, it was, it was a group of investors that included Damien Hurst. And they only bought, I think they bought 50% of it. So Damien Hurst kept, you know, had, had his piece and then a group of investors bought the rest, um, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's such a self-dealing thing going on here. There, there was also a similar case of a photographer who, whose auction results you could go look at and, you know, you could buy these things pretty cheap, um, at cheaply in the secondary market at auction, but, but he would sell these photos in Vegas and, you know, at, at, you know for, for large sums of money that would go up as the edition ran out but he had supposedly sold one for 25 million, making it the most um, expensive artwork ever. So or, or, I'm sorry, expensive photograph ever sold. And, you know, I'm thinking clearly he must've done something like this, right? He must, there's no way anybody in their right mind paid 25 million for this guy's photograph when they could just go buy one at auction for $800 because there really is no secondary market. And um, so that sort of led me to think, Oh, that's, you know, how, I, I'd like, I, I would like to make a billion dollar artwork or, you know, I, I want, I want to sell an artwork for a huge amount of money too. Here's how I can do it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And I'm definitely going to be using these as examples in, in my copyright uh, classes, because I think they're very thought provoking in terms of kind of abstracting a lot of these doctrinal principles in ways that hopefully will illuminate to students sort of, how the doctrine actually works and the assumptions the doctrine makes. Um, but uh, Alfred, in, in closing, I, I wonder if for my benefit, as well as my listeners, you could talk to me a little bit about sort of broadly speaking, how you conceptualize this particular body of work in which you sort of combine legal doctrine and conceptual art. Like I kind of, I can't help but wonder, like, do you have a name for this 
kind of practice? How do you think about this kind of practice as sort of like an amalgamation of art and law? And how do you situate it within the kind of broader practice of conceptual art, which it seems to me is sort of like the natural fit, but feel free to disagree. I, I agree with the last point. That definitely is, is the natural fit. Um, I, I can't, I don't have like, I don't have a silver bullet in terms of, of, of how I would um, describe the work. I don't have a, a great name for it. Although the fact that you're suggesting that, you know, now my, my brain will start ticking and maybe I'll come up with something. Um, and I, I have to say that I'm just, I'm sort of feeling my way project by project in terms of what these projects, you know, how, you know, what this group of, of works means um, or what it is in terms of, you know, so I'm like, you know, I, I'm drawing a point on the page with, you know, one or two or a couple of points and maybe, you know, maybe now I have like three or four points and I've got a plane, but in terms of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fleshing it out and, and I don't, um, I can't, I, I can't, I don't have a name for it in terms of how I think of it. I don't, um, I think that like all like conceptual work, really is very legalistic in a sense, um, in, in a weird sense that, like I said, w- with respect to that Lawrence Wiener work I mentioned, really what you're buying is the right to stop somebody else from claiming they own it, right? Because if somebody else says, I own this, this is a, or, 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 you know, this is a Lawrence Wiener piece, then you can say, you know, no, you don't, I own it, here's my piece of paper. But I can't stop you from, I can't do anything other than stop you from claiming that you own it. It's, it's such a, it's, it's very abstract. And so that sort of legalistic, um, you know, legalistic idea of, 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 of what conceptual art is, it's just, it's a, um, because it's so abstract, or it can be so abstract, lends itself to, to treatment through the law, through contracts, probably through litigation and other things. I mean, I, I'm not, um, the hard, the tough thing about litigation is that you can imagine all sorts of, of suits that people bring, um, you know, just for the point of bringing them I, I, or, 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 or to make a point, right. That, that aren't really real. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the word, um, uh, bogus lawsuits, essentially. And I don't mean bogus in, as frivolous, but like we're neither the, the defendant and the and the, and the plaintiff don't actually have a problem. They're just, they're just engaged in a, in sort of a, a false lawsuit to prove a point. Um, like I, I certainly have never considered anything like that. Um, and I wouldn't because I, I think the courts are busy enough dealing with real issues. Um, but that I think litigation as a, as an artistic tool is interesting. You can look at, you know, Richard Prince, he's, he has been so, um, uh, dismissive essentially of, of copyright that, that he, you know, he was willing to say when deposed that, you know, he, he didn't have any particular reason for choosing images that carry you, you know, out of carry book. He just liked them, you know, like, so uh, he, you know, even knowing presumably as lawyers advised him, look, if you come up with it, if you explain your theory as to why you're using these, that will go a long way to, 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 to making it tough for the plaintiff to prevail. He's like, no, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to. So you could view some of that, that his work there, or, you know, his litigation there as, um, as, as part of his body of work. I, I think that if it, I think that he has done a lot for, for artists who appropriate. Um, I think he's kind of like bad facts make bad law in the sense that, 
well, I, I, I actually thought he might lose. And I think he might lose some of these Instagram cases if they ever, if there's ever a decision, but um, you know, it, you know, but he's doing so little, you know, he all he's, he's like literally just copying and doing absolutely nothing as opposed, you know, it, 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 um, so I don't know. It's, I don't know if that answered your question, but um, I'm not sure these are the questions that are made to be answered. And I, I must say, I really like the way you described like drawing points and seeing how they develop because it was a very kind of artist's way of thinking about developing legal ideas into something that kind of coalesces into a coherent whole. Um, so. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've really, I, I feel like there, there are a lot of things that I thought we might talk about and um, you know, I'd, I'd be always be happy to, to join you again, or, you know, we can, when next time I come to Lexington or next time you come to New York, we can get a, a beer if, if, if in-person meetings are permitted at that point. Absolutely. I'd be delighted. And I'd love to have you back on. And um, this was really fun. I learned a lot. I'm a big fan and uh, I hope to, you know, become a collector of your conceptual art at some point. Okay. Well, we, I'm sure we can make that happen. the table now all up there.